0: Hola hola, welcome to the White Rabbit Space, a playground for conscious creators, people who are awake to what is and isn't working in our world, who want to live a life of meaning, some of whom are helping individuals tap into their strengths, others who are focused on creating fairer models to live by, ultimately to allow more people to thrive and live fulfilling lives. But this isn't gonna come easy. It's going to take collective effort, individual work, and believing in a dream bigger than ourselves and stretches further than our lifetime. Each of the individuals I chat with here have inspired me in some way, and it'd be a shame if more people didn't benefit from their stories. I wish we could all sit around a bonfire and experience their passion face-to-face, but for now, The power of technology enables stories to reach far and wide. Today's topic is one of the heavier ones many of us struggle addressing in our lives. The topic of death, of mortality. If we haven't come close to it in our lifetime, we've either heard of the stories of people who have and how they turned their lives around, or maybe we've been struck by losing someone who we've loved and held dear many of us have also heard of the famous steve jobs quote if today were the last day of your life would you want to do what you're about to do today i hope your answer is yes more days than not but if it's not get back to why you're doing it and recalibrate shifts in our choices even if small if they are better for our heart and our mind, they are better for us and can lead to lifetimes lifetime that we can look back on and think, hell yeah, I did a pretty good job with my life, despite the shit that came my way. And so today we have with us Chris Allen, founder of the Earth Medicine Experience in Cusco, Peru, who's gonna inspire us about living more fully. Someone who's come back from the dead quite literally more than once and is the embodiment of courage, strength and compassion. Topped with a dash of sarcastic humor, but it did take work and it wasn't an easy road. The pandemic has made us grapple with the reality of death more intimately for some more than others but lurking in our psyche nonetheless. Chris shares his stories on death, healing, and redemption, having encountered four near-death experiences, in one of which he experienced a vivid and life-changing out-of-body experience. He has dedicated his life to working with people who seek deep healing from trauma, be it physical or emotional, working with those with addiction and depression as well as working with leaders who have numbed out and are looking for a way to reignite their creativity and find purpose and meaning. Finally, Chris encounters several people who just want to know where we've come from and want a deeper understanding of the truth of the world we live in. Chris and his team facilitate ayahuasca ceremonies, among others, yoga, nutrition and fitness retreats, combining ancient wisdom and modern day knowledge. He explains the purpose of them and how to prepare. So come with us on this journey as we dig deep on topics that will inform our perception of life and death. Chris, I am so thrilled to have you on the show. We have a lot of ground to cover, so I think we should just jump right into it. When COVID-19 first kicked off, I was looking at the conversations happening in the networks that I kind of float in, and that's tech and innovation, the startup community, biofeedback, and spirituality. It was like schizophrenic personalities, you know. So you'd look at the well, startup. Yeah, I, I, I know that feeling. <laughs> I'd look at the whole startup world, and I'd look at all the messages going through, and everyone's about doing action. We've got to solve everything, fix everything. And the other sides know we got to breathe into this, and we've got to, you know, make sure that the energy feels well and healed. And it's not about fixing the world; the world can fix itself.
1: That's a great point. The world can fix itself.
0: I mean, we've got to take action, but where are we focusing our attention? The quote. I'd like to refer to that really sums it up nicely. It was by Buckminister Fuller, of course, Bucky himself, and he said, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. So there's this concept of fixing that needs to vanish, and he said, To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So innovation and creativity, yes, super needed. But this concept of fixing what already exists, now that's a problem.
1: Yeah. George Carlin has a great speech about that, how the world's going to be fine because Mother Earth will take it all back one day. Oh. It's where We're so caught in our ego that we're going to save everything. I think how can we positively impact the world, but we can't control anything. Except for, you know, how we interact with one another and there's too many variables to just like come in and save the planet, but so doing things that you're talking about, raising the consciousness, affecting the leaders. And that's been my whole thing. Like I was telling you, like the people that we've had on on the retreats that work for Microsoft, for Boeing, they work in Silicon Valley. I work with those people, and it's not all about deep healing. It's about expanding your consciousness and, yes. and being more creative and having new ways to approach problems that it's not all about fixing it, but maybe learning to live with it and move around it as opposed to always trying to control.
0: And I think it also has a lot to do with loving ourselves or being at peace with ourselves. So, a lot of times I see an I used to be that person. It was a form of escapism where I didn't want to deal with certain things. And I feel like for leaders to be great in our time, we need to acknowledge when things are shit. And that refers to when we are not feeling good on the inside this isn't just not about problems that one may be having in their business or in their community or in their you know in in their social circles but how are you feeling on the inside? Have you acknowledged why you possibly feel that way? Have you maybe identified the triggers that you need to start becoming aware of so you don't go off on a tangent or you don't become depressed? Yeah the,
1: the best problems to solve are personal problems first. Thank you. I mean, yeah. Majority of the like I mean the majority of the problems in the world stem from, I believe, the, the mental health condition. You know, there is a lot of mental illness. You you see it all over the world right now and that's sort of what drew me to Peru as opposed to you know I worked in Thailand for a while doing retreats where I'd work with a lot of business people and a lot of corporate types and they didn't know how to relax they didn't even know they had problems they didn't like they didn't understand themselves you know I'd be teaching a yoga class and I'd say raise your right arm and they put their left foot up. <laughs> it's like they're constantly in their head they're not in their body they're not so it's like for me it's like the fascinating work is like working with ourselves and Working with ourselves and approaching leaders and helping them address those patterns that you're talking about. The samskaras, the deep grooves of, you know, because a lot of people, you know, are really, I don't know how to word this politically correct, but I see a lot of people who are highly intelligent and driven, but they're emotionally stunted. They have no idea how to handle their emotional body. You know their energetic body the things that they're just because they're so cut off and they don't even realize it's a problem so then when you have those people that are going to try to help solve the world's problems they don't even know how to solve their own you know they don't even know they have any so it's kind of like to me the revolution that we need starts on an individual basis you know not all this finger pointing of other people and telling them these people need to do this I and mean, you see it now like the U.S. is on fire you know as far as like you know you know figuratively it's on fire and you know it's like the way this year started and everybody's blaming each other and it's just going to continue a cycle it's just the same cycle of everybody separates into groups left or right black or white men or women and they all wow. just and the reason I like working with psychedelics is a lot of the times it smacks people out of nowhere, and then they realize, holy shit, like I've been looking at the wrong thing the whole time. Like, I need to focus on me, and once I set the example, more people will come. Like, the best leaders, the best leaders are people that embody their message. Nobody yes. wants a personal trainer telling what? you, like, don't work out, and, and they're like 30 pounds <laughs> over. <overweight. laughs> I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> like Yeah. It's, so on. Working on myself, so.
0: so on that note, you you mentioned about you know you've got to embody what it is you want to do your work in the world. So what would you say is your is your core?
1: Well, I've had a lot of change. Mm-hmm. I've, I've recreated myself. Probably, I would say there have been at least two or three major life changing events where I just completely went a different direction than I expected. Um, so you asked me, like I was reading all your questions that you sent me at a very thorough list of the topics and things. And I would say that probably one of my main purposes, and it isn't even something that I chose, it was almost like it was chosen for me, was is basically just being an advocate for mental health, mental health issues, and also an advocate for plant medicines and psychedelics. Mm-hmm. those to me and, and it's based on personal experience it's only based on how I've healed myself because you know like I always joke with people I tell them I have a black belt in trauma like what do I know, <laughs> I, know trauma. I know trauma really well I know uh, mental illness really well on a very um, intimate basis so I mean I can get into that I can. I, I have a very interesting story but what I can do is I can put it into a sort of a Coles Notes version of what brought me along. Mm-hmm. So the reason I'm so interested in trauma has been with my own personal experience. Um, when I was eight years old, I was just a you know a kid, I contracted a strange virus and the doctors didn't know what it was at the time. So this was my first experience of quarantine. I was an eight year old child who was put in quarantine for about a month in a hospital where nobody could visit me unless they had complete protective gear. I had a gland on the side of my throat that basically blew up the size of a softball. Um, so for a month, I suffered an isolation in quarantine, and the doctors didn't know what I was suffering with, what the ailment was. And eventually, one day, I started to heal from it, and I was released. Um, so, you know, that was my first encounter with quarantine. That's why it's been so interesting during this quarantine to, to see, you know, it's, it's a little bit different when you can quarantine. You can work out at home and do things. When you're in a hospital quarantine, it's a very different Different flavor, different experience. So very traumatic for an eight-year-old because you constantly, it gets in your head that there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the first scars of there's something wrong with me. There's something like, I need help, I'm sick, there's something wrong, mm-hmm. and I started playing that. A year later, um, I was involved in an accident where I had a bucket of gasoline kicked on my legs, it was on fire, a bucket was on fire. Um, I suffered third degree burns to about 60% of my legs. This was when I was nine years old, so I spent my 10th birthday in a children's burn unit. I spent about three and a half months in a burn unit, and underwent skin grafting all kinds of surgeries very painful burn bath every day which is a saline solution where they basically scrub your skin with a with a wire pad to remove the the gangrene skin to prepare for surgery so Mm. very traumatic it's probably one of the worst pains i've ever felt Um, during that time recovering from the burns you start to itch because i don't know if you've ever had a burn before the hard part of a burn is it itches like scabs Oh, it's horrible. So as a nine-year-old, I'm told don't scratch your skin because you'll ruin the skin grafts. And, of course, as a nine-year-old kid, you want to itch. There's an itch, so you want to scratch it. So um, they had to basically tie me to the bed for my recovery that I wouldn't rip the skin grafts off. So there was a lot of really traumatic things that happened to me during that time. But also, like, you know, if there's a hell on earth, it would probably be the children's burn you. You know, you have infants screaming and crying from their burns, and you know I can only, like, so much respect and love for the nurses that do that job because I can only imagine what the burnout rate of that is and the nightmares it causes. Um, I'll come back to the story, but there was something that happened when I was in the burn unit. A child in the room next to me was there and it would scream for days, until eventually one day it stopped screaming, and I asked the nurses, oh, is the baby okay? And they're like, no, the baby died. So it created another, you know, the first with the virus and then going into the burns, I started having reoccurring nightmares of being back in the burn unit with this infant child screaming, and I could never, I was crawling down the hallway, and I could never get to the baby. So that's something that I had dealt with for probably two decades, and I'll share more later when I get into plant medicines and how it helped me heal from that. Um, so after the burn unit, um Basically, I didn't know what PTSD was, but I was basically a 10-year-old child who had already had complex PTSD, which led to um, depression, um, all kinds of problems. Like the unit was horrible. Um, I started getting into problems with drugs and alcohol as a very young kid. So 12 years old, I started smoking pot. I started drinking, you know, whatever drugs I could get my hands on. And I didn't understand any of it because... After the burns, I had to learn how to walk again. So the main focus was only on the physical. It was Mm. all about, I need to heal myself. I need to get my physical body up. I need to learn how to walk again. I had to go through the whole, you know, where they have the crane, where they put the little thing where you can lean on and you can learn how to walk. And I went through all, all that. The main focus was that. And not once, as a 10 year old child, did any adult come and say, Would you like to talk about what happened to you? Like, how do you feel? Like, what is Mm. none of it was addressed. It was just like, Okay, go back to school now. And Mm. you were talking about panic attacks. I mean, talk about panic attacks. I mean, I couldn't be around fire for like a year because it would rain up all these horrible memories. So then I started getting into trouble, and pretty much from the age 12. To 17, 18, I ran wild. I mean, I left home when I was 16 years old. I started, you know, getting into fights and started selling drugs. I went down a really horrible path. And I didn't understand what was wrong with me. Because it was like it was obviously there was something wrong because I couldn't sleep. I was having nightmares. I was constantly on edge and really cranky. And all I knew how to do was self-medicate. So I did that and I ended up getting in quite a bit of trouble for selling drugs at a public school. So um, when I was facing, you know, court and the police, I was a young offender and they gave me the choice um, if I wanted to, you know, go to a, a private military school to try to reform. So I obviously took that choice. I completely turned things around. I started playing on the rugby team. Um, I was coaching everybody with jiu-jitsu and wrestling, something I'm very passionate about. And I was doing all that. And I managed to turn my life around for the better. Um, I got uh, enlisted. I got accepted at uh, Dalhousie University. Uh, which is in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a pretty famous university. And I am studying psychology and nutrition. And, uh, you know, with the, the thought of I always wanted to be a sports psychologist because I was always fascinated about how people, um, some people rise to a challenge and some get crushed. Yep. Yeah. You, know, you meet certain personalities that are full of excuses, and others find solutions. And it was always like, I was like, wow, like the mind is a really powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And I knew there was something wrong with mine, so I was like, <laughs> I'm <wearing> <laughs> Right? That's what I felt like. So I had turned things around. I was in my second uh, year of uh, classes, and I was involved in a head-on car crash. So <clears throat> this was this was probably my first. You asked me one of your questions. My first awakening. Um, I had been working shift work at um, a factory to pay for my university. Um, So the shift work leaves you very tired. You're working 12-hour days. Sometimes it's midnight till noon or noon till midnight. Very physical, uh, manual labor. And I fell asleep at the wheel driving into my first week of classes. And um, I was involved in a head-on car crash. I was going about 110 kilometers an hour. There was a woman coming the other way. And we both head on. And she was pronounced dead, you know, dead on impact. Uh, And me, what had happened was um, after the impact, there was like a, it was an Oldsmobile car, which has what's called a coach seat. And the coach seat means that the passenger, the passenger and the driver's seat are connected on a sliding thing. So they both move together. Well, as we hit that slid forward, sucked my legs under there, blew my pelvis open. So I had an open book fracture of my Pelvis, cracked the pelvis in the back, butterfly fracture of my left femur, which just shattered, right femur, clean break, right ankle, compound dislocation, left foot, all the metatarsal bones completely crushed, collapsed the lung, tore two layers of my aorta, and had tons of like scarring from metal and glass. But on the impact, I basically spun out and the car went into the ditch. And what happened, and this is what sort of took me. Down the path of plant medicine is when you're born, you have a release of DMT because DMT is in our body natural. Yep. When you die, you have a release of DMT. Mm-hmm. However, you can also have a release of DMT on a near-death experience. So you hear about these near-death experiences, and if you research it online, the NDEs and people talk about a white light and hearing, you know, this and certain things, people are like, oh, you know, it's it's God, it's this. A lot of people believe it's the natural release of DMT. So for me, what happened, I was pronounced dead on the scene. Um, I was basically half in, half out of the car, but the you know, basically I, I lost, I had a huge cut in my neck close to the jugular vein and I had almost bled out. I left my body that day and started floating above the crash scene. Mm. And I'm looking down on the car and I'm, you know, I'm, i I can feel the treetops and I'm looking as if I'm touching them but I have no hand and I can feel that I'm like that's really strange and I'm looking down and I just felt this overwhelming love and peace Mm -hmm. and there was light but it wasn't like a tunnel that I was going towards it was just I was the light everything was the light I felt connected to everything I felt like I was the wind I was the treetops and I felt like I could keep going and I wanted to keep flying up wherever it it may go and the voice of my dead grandfather came to me and he said Chris he's like I love you. It's not your time. You need to go back. You need to go back. And I remember pleading with him, like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm done <laughs> like, with no, this. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. I, I see what's down there. It's like that's about a year of rehab down there. I'm like, I'm good on that. So he convinced me, and it's like I remember almost having the choice of like I had him by the hand, even though I didn't have hands. It was like our energy was connected, and in that moment, I realized that everything's connected know what i mean and this is people like people that have near-death experiences or, or you know kundalini awakening or yes. meditation like so many different paths to this but when you realize that everything's connected it was just like that moment of oh my god and i was like thank you so much and then i went back, back down into my body and when I went back down into my body, I'm surrounded by firefighters and, and these people and my body's completely broken, and the pain is unbelievable. Literally, bones sticking out of the skin, smash, they had to drag me out of the car. I went in, so I had that awakening and that crazy experience, but then it was followed by literally a year of surgeries pain trauma they had to completely reconstruct my lower body with titanium plates screws rods um, so that was very painful but it was like I remember going into those first couple surgeries for the first two weeks that I was in the hospital I was basically in a drug-induced coma do you know what I mean so mm, I was yes of pain. course yep I know I what know you're talking where was, about and I didn't know what was going on I was so confused and like I said that rehab like it was always my dream to be a professional fighter. I'd always been really into jiu-jitsu and wrestling and kickboxing. And I started, I'd actually trained with people that are in the know with jiu-jitsu. i trained uh, seminars with Hoist Gracie, which was the original UFC champion. So I was in on the scene way back. And after the car accident, I mean, I was done. That dream had basically been ripped away because it took me a year to learn how to walk again. Um, I went through surgeries I managed to rehab myself, and again, just to touch on the point, it was all about the physical there was at no point did anybody come and say, you know, Hey, you know, there was a woman that was involved, you know, she passed away. How do you feel about that? I would come to learn more about survivors guilt and carrying the guilt and the shame of being in an accident. That was my fault that caused another human to die. Like they didn't touch on any of that. It was all like, Oh, we need to get you walking again and we'll get you all set up. So that was the main focus. I remember recovering from all that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to switch my university. And I'm going to go and study at a different university in the valley. I'm going to switch what I'm studying. I'm sort of questioning everything at this point, you know, because I just had this crazy spiritual awakening, then followed by all the trauma and surgery. So I'm confused as fuck. Like, I don't know whether I'm coming or going or what I'm doing. So instead of focusing on any of the mental aspects, I just hop back in for another year of university. And I, I guess it was somebody telling me that I was on the wrong path because <laughs> two years into, or I two weeks into my third year of university, I was bicycling and I had a backpack with all my books and my computer. And back in those days, computers were big; they were made of my uh, Yeah, so a lot of oh. rolls out in front of me, cuts out in front of me, and I hit this car. all kinds of uh, road rash and skin damage. But I remember it wasn't so bad. I remember just getting up and the first thing was I can't believe this has happened. So I grab my bicycle and it's smashed. So I carry it back to my apartment and I'm having massive chest pains. So I don't know what's going on. I go to the hospital. They scrub out my road rash. They take a chest x-ray and they send me on my way. So that weekend... I got my bike fixed and I biked home. It was about 100, I remember because it was about a 100 kilometer bike ride, 120 kilometer bike ride back to the town that I was living in when I wasn't at university. And I remember doing it because it was the one year anniversary of my car accident. So I'm like biking and I had a special moment where I I laid down, I biked past the crash scene and I'm like healthy now and strong. I stopped and I kind of gave, you know, gratitude and thanks. I, I get home to see my girlfriend at the time and we pour a glass of wine, and I sit down. It's going to be a good weekend. Phone rings, and she just kind of looks and hands me the phone. I'm like, is this Chris Allen? I'm like, yes. They're like, are you sitting down? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, we had just received the results from your chest X-ray. You have uh, torn two layers of your aorta a year before, and now you have what's referred to as a pseudoaneurysm, and your heart's basically ready to explode. You need emergency heart surgery. So, I was like, at that point, I finished the bottle of wine. And I was like, ah, fuck. So, I go, and again, it was like, there's something wrong with me. You know what I mean? There's always something wrong with me. There's always some trauma. So, so I go, and I was with heart surgery. Yeah, so basically they did an open heart surgery, but instead of cutting in the front and breaking the sternum, I had a very good surgeon who went in through the back. Yeah. They'd have to collapse the lung, open the ribs. They'd cut a chunk of my aorta and pull it together and stitch it it up. Um, The surgery went smooth. I think it was like an eight-hour surgery, but they managed to fix me. Uh, Very painful recovery, but again, I remember it was all about the physical, and I recovered And after the heart surgery, I've read a few articles about this, but I think there's somewhere, excuse me, between a 50 to 60% um, chance of a heart patient suffering a massive depression and trying to commit suicide if their heart has actually been touched. Do you know what I mean? So if your heart is physically stopped and touched, it almost, it's weird that it's not meant to be. So it causes a depression. Yeah. Mm, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm, That's so fascinating because there's so much work being done on the power of the heart and how, you know, obviously we know it beats for us and there's so much ancient wisdom that says follow your heart and the heart's the source of wisdom. But really from a scientific standpoint, I was reading up on Dr. Joe Dispenza's work and I practice his breath work and I really find, find him fascinating. He speaks to me. In, in a way that I can dissect and understand what deep healing is, is all about. And he had a quote that he put out in one of his books and posts, posted on one of his social channels just the other day and said, we've been led to believe that the brain reigns over our biology. While this is partly true, the heart is an autorhythmic organ, which means the heartbeat is self-initiated from within the heart, not from the brain. Now that is fucking fascinating. Which means the heart is a powerhouse on its own and it generates its own, it has its own consciousness, so to say. It has its own brain. Well, if there is a human being that comes in and tampers with it, I can only imagine that it leaves an emotional scar. Having overcome physical and emotional trauma time and again, would you say there's anything good that comes out of this?
1: I believe, I have a strong belief that I think everybody should go through a deeply traumatic event in their life to help, you know, help them realize You know, about gratitude. Yes. That we worry about that that doesn't matter. Yes, I agree. it It gets me so upset when I hear people complaining about certain shit. And it's like, I catch myself doing it all the time because, you know, yes, you have an awakening. But an awakening, just because you have it doesn't mean you stay awake. You can go back to sleep at any time you want you can get drunk you can cross addict with relationships you can cross whatever you want to distract yourself from and so just because you have an awakening doesn't mean like oh i reached the finish line now i'm all good it's like yep. no actually now it's daily work and it's it's mm-hmm. brutal it sometimes can be frustrating because yep. you don't feel like you're on the right path you feel like you're doing things wrong and then and then obviously other people come in and if you're not careful with you know listen it can just steer you way off the path that you
0: should be on. Oh, this is a nice topic to segue into. So what would you say your purpose is or the dream that you wanted to follow? What is it that you wanted to do after coming out of an experience like this? I'm sure you felt like, fuck it. I want to do something I love.
1: I had, you know, three year attempts at uh, studying psychology and nutrition and all these things. So I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm not going back to university. I'm a musician I've been playing guitar and and writing songs since I've been a kid. So I'm gonna go and follow my dream of being a musician. I'm gonna go, I was, at the time, I was living on the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia. Um, and then I decided, you know what, it's always been a dream of mine to be a musician. So I'm going to move to the West Coast of Vancouver, B.C. Um, I enrolled in a year long course of recorded music production, learning how to work in a studio and how to mic everything and getting all the right levels. So it's like that was always my passion, something that for me was huge in the rehab process. Music for me is like music can heal for sure. You know, it's like, you know, people always talk about the placebo effect of different things. But when you have good music, it can really heal your spirit and, and can make you want to do better. It can. It's a, it, for me, it's a tool. I use it when I work out. I mean, it taps into something. If I have aggressive music, it can make me push harder. If I have gentle music, it can help me relax. So it's like I'd always loved music. So I basically went to the West Coast when I was 21 years old and started doing this music production. However, because of the heart surgery, I had no idea what was coming. I went through, it hit me about a couple months into into my studies, massive depression. Massive depression from the heart surgery, which led me down the road of getting drunk every day, getting high, um, and met some really unsavory characters in Vancouver, Canada. I ended up getting into some really bad things to try to deal with mm-hmm. my depression. Um, and I didn't know how. And also as a young man who was, you know, a tough guy and wanted you don't talk about your feelings, you know, you stuff everything down. Yeah, I didn't know anybody to talk to. So I just basically self-medicated through the depression, which after about a year, year and a half lifted um i got involved in working the film industry for a bit doing stunts and acting stunts of all things you know with my broken body i had rehab because i was young and strong but now i'm still pushing the limits um very toxic environment i don't know if you're familiar with the film industry but it's people up it's them out. the hours are long uh i think you know the divorce rate and addiction rate with the people that work in in film is pretty fucking high you know there's a lot of miserable people um, so I had had a chance to to work in front of the camera and behind the camera and did some things. Um, during that time, one of my other passions is, is basically just coaching people with physical fitness, um, yeah. whether it be martial arts or just, you know, rehabbing people because I have a very unique outlook on how to rebuild the human body because during my rehabs, like literally after my car accident, um, I went in, I was a very high level athlete. Uh, martial arts, and after the car accident, my new training regimen was taking a, a little water bottle and only filling it half full and curling it with the only arm that wasn't in a cast or have metal sticking out of it. So, I have a, a, a very unique way of training people because of that experience. And I see people that are really overweight. You know, you have to approach people differently, every different personality has a way that will respond. And just I've had a knack or a gift of dealing with people and helping them recover from whatever they're going through or getting in shape so i just started doing that um i ended up running and managing a mixed martial arts gym in the lower east side of vancouver canada now lower east side um There was a book written about it by Dr. Gabor Mate. Check out Dr. Gabor Mate in the Realm of the Hungry Ghost. In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost is a a book written about the Lower East Side in Vancouver, Canada, because there is an epidemic of meth, cocaine, and crack addiction. The Mm. neighbourhood is filled with gangsters, prostitutes, um, lost souls, you know, a lot of natives, you know, like now that we're seeing, you know, this whole Black Lives uh, Matter movement we also forget about the Native Americans. They got fucked over pretty hard too. Like, mm-hmm. let's not leave them out of the conversation because those people have been, you know, pushed off onto reservations and yeah, one hundred percent and forgotten. So, in the neighborhood that I worked in, I managed this mixed martial arts gym, but also did security to try to, you know, keep the neighborhood safe, which was a pretty tall job. I mean, you're basically um, you're basically a grief mop. You're not really fixing anything. You're just moving grief around from place to place because mm. there's so much of it. Um, so I worked in that neighborhood and did that for quite a few years until eventually my, I had developed a, a drug addiction to OxyContin. Mm-hmm. So I would take a lot of OxyContin, a lot of Percocets. Uh, if I couldn't get that, it would be cocaine, it would be booze. And I ran as a functioning, you know, drug addict and alcoholic for probably about two years until um, one day there was an incident um, and I got uh, I got really screwed up and I got shipped off to rehab for three months so I spent three months in a rehab facility it was my first time in a in a sort of drug and alcohol rehab facility all mm-hmm. my rehabs have been physical and now I'm in a facility where it's like okay now I'm going to deal with the mind mm-hmm. you know, now after all these years I'm going to start and I'll I'll be honest like It was based on the 12-step program, and I think that if 12 steps works for you, you know, I I follow Russell Brandt. I know he's a 12-stepper, and you know there's a lot of people that it works really well for, but for me, it just, there was like a neon sign. It just said cult. It's like, I just felt like the (laughs) 12-step program was a cult. It's like, you know, I see all these people who are in recovery, smoking a pack of cigarettes, drinking coffee, and eating sugar as much as they can, and they're in recovery, and they're the most unhealthy and miserable people i knew and i'm like mm. well, this doesn't look like recovery i remember in in rehab it took me the first 2 months to get past step number 1 which is admitting we're weak and powerless what i at the no door way. no way <laughs> until eventually i just wanted to get out okay i'm weak and powerless it's like you know I give my like power move out. on with it <laughs> let's get to the 12 steps and get out of here so it's like I I don't want to make it sound like I didn't take something away from it, but I just noticed that the therapists were all screwed up too. Like I had doctors and and psychologists and psychiatrists, and and they're all miserable. I mean, some of them are overweight, and it's like, you know, as a coach, I always like one-on-one body being healthy and those things, the same as when I look for coaches. So as a mental coach, I'm like, you're miserable. I don't, like, what are you going to coach me on? Like, you've read all the the DSM, you've studied, and you've gone through your book smarts, but you don't have any real-life experience with any of this. So I didn't relate to my, you know, I found more healing in talking to other recovering addicts, and that's what the 12-step program offers for people as a community. Mm. It's something that... I've carried forward. I do think community is important. You need to have people that you can reach out and talk to. You need to have people that you can share what's really going on. You know, and people will check you. You know, my best friends are like, Chris, you're full of shit. You know, like, that's not it. And it's like, okay, you're right. First, I get pissed. And I'm like, thank you. (laughs) So those are your your friends, the ones that talk shit to your face. Yes,
0: (laughs) the honest truth. It's the brutal truth. Those are the best ones.
1: brutal brutal truth. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah that was an interesting experience going through rehab, and I managed to stay sober for a full year. Unfortunately, I was still managing the gym, I was still hanging out with you know different people that were into like gang shit and people that like the neighborhood was bad so for one year, I was almost like the shining little light in this dark hole you know where there was no hope around for anybody and eventually, it just tore me down. I was like I ended up um I had something really bad happen i I had to leave. I was like, I've done rehab. I've tried this. I have to leave the situation. I'm around bad people. I'm not doing the things that I don't feel like. I'm not in alignment anymore. I'm trying to be sober. I'm trying mm-hmm. to, to better myself, and I'm with all these other people who are trying to pull me down. So, I relocated back to um, Nova Scotia um, on the east coast, and I probably took about a year and a half. You know, that's when I really got heavy into yoga. I stopped. You know, I had, had problems, and injuries. You know, obviously the all the hardware I have in my body I need to be careful of how hard I push myself now and prevent injury so I really found yoga I'd always done yoga but I had never like I'd always sort of studied it on my own and done my own like had a few teachers but preferred to just do it on my own I didn't like the class aspect of always going I kind of I said you know what I'm going to join a class and I started doing yoga and I started doing it once twice every day and studying a lot and it helped me through a period Um, it helped me stay sober you know like So I'd I'd gone from, you know, being involved in a situation that was really shitty for me into a position that was good, and after about a year and a half, I decided uh, I'm going to move to Thailand, and I'm going to move to Thailand, and I'm going to start running yoga and fitness retreats, Mm -hmm. and like I said, because of all the experiences that I had, it just gave me this special capability of connecting with people. Like, if somebody was going through a rough time, like, you feeling okay, and they can be like... You know, people are so scared to talk about being depressed it was like the worst word ever like as soon as you say anything for me i'm like i've been you know smashed and burnt and crashed all over the place i don't care like i don't care what people think of me anymore i'm like this is what it is yeah you're damn right i went through depression so then people felt like hey you know this guy really gets it you know he really understands it's not like you know i always tell this funny story that's you know like some doctors, doctors and psychologists, it's the same as everything else. There's some good ones and there's some bad ones.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, when I was going through the really tough time and doing recovering from what happened in Vancouver, I was doing yoga and I was also seeing a therapist. Well, the first therapist that I had, I had already gone and seen him three times. And it was on the fourth visit where I'm sitting in front of him and he's not even making eye contact with me. And he's like, and he said, so Kevin, he's like, how are the wife and kids? I'm like, who the fuck is Kevin? And it's
0: like, he's like <laughs> no, no way. way.
1: So uh, no like, you know what I mean? Way. These are the stories of trying to recover and reach out for help. It's like, here's some dude who doesn't even want his job. He's supposed to be helping people, and he has no like he can't even remember my name. You know what I mean? So it's like it's like there are I did have good doctors along the way, but for me, there's such a need for good Mental health Mm workers—we're lacking in that. You know, people that actually listen, and people that—not just people that study the books, but people that understand. It's like you know, there's that term "bedside manner" with doctors. You know, how a doctor will come in with a clipboard, patient three seven nine is just playing, and it's like they're talking about you like you're not even there. And it's like, fuck, I'm like right here. How about like, how are you today? Even just thirty seconds of how are you doing? How do you feel? Not just a scale of one to ten, and it's all just like this. It's not, it's dehumanizing. Yes, it's like you're a mixed.
0: statistic, that's it.
1: 100%, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's like, you know, something that I always talk with about people. You know, you need to have people that you trust and want to talk to because don't just talk to anybody because it can, it can almost be like secondary wound. If you deal with somebody that doesn't understand, you know, you'll get advice like suck it up and just push through and all this bullshit. It's like, that's not actually a strategy. You know, you got to honor where you're at and look at those things first, where you just suck it up and pull through. Like, yeah, that works as a fighter, but as a human who's trying to live, that's a whole different thing, you know? It's
0: like like this whole concept of working through the emotion needs to be communicated more. It's like, feel it. If you're angry, be angry. If you're feeling sadness, feel sadness. Get it out of your system. Especially with every industrial revolution, right? We've become like the productivity-intense economy across the globe. Which is all There's about cogs
1: in his, his machine. yeah. Dogs in a machine, a number, and
0: that's it. You know, that's what it is. I remember when I went to see um, uh, a psychiatrist. He didn't even talk to me, by the way. He didn't know what, like, he didn't know what my story was. He didn't ask about anything. He's like, "You have depression. You're just going to need some Prozac." Like, Ugh. I was like, "Really?" Like, you know, and you know, then you if you don't have. Um, some way of sifting to always second guess what you've been told, you would just get sucked into that and then you'd be dependent on the
1: drug. There's a quote, I forget who said it, but it's very powerful and I'm sure that uh, it'll resonate with a lot of people. But those treated with Western medicine need to recover twice, once Mm -hmm. from the ailment and once from the medication. I, I went on antidepressants when I was in Vancouver and I was struggling with the uh, drug addiction and I went and I was same as you. You know, I went and I just said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm having really bad thoughts. You know, it's like I, I feel like life is meaningless now and I've had so much suffering and, you know, this and that and I, I really don't know. I'm starting to get scared. Like, I just don't feel like I don't have a purpose. I don't have a meaning. I don't have direction. I don't have any help. And the first thing the doctor did, like... Just like you yes. said, wrote, wrote up a script, and he's like, here you go. And he wrote me a script for Wellbutrin, which, you know, when I actually look back on it, Wellbutrin is like the, a drug that they use for some reason to help people stop smoking and all these different things, and it's loaded full of stimulants. So now I'm fucking jacked and having panic attacks all day. It's like what I got out of antidepressants for the first month I was on, I noticed something good that happened when I was on antidepressants. I went about a month and it would give me a moment before I would have an emotional outburst or I would react. It would give me that split second that I needed to be like, no, don't say anything. Just, you know, get it under control and think about what you're doing here. And it would give me that moment. But after the month of that went by, I went into the second and third month where I was just flat. I was never happy. I was never sad. I was just kind of robotic. It was just the baseline. Sex drives down. Energy levels are down. Now I feel even more depressed because now it's the things that you should be enjoying in life. I don't care for anymore. I don't feel like my, I have my personality, my sense of humor, my, it's, humor, my it's energy.
0: the numbness you, 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 you get numb. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So my, my run with antidepressants pretty much finished after a year, uh, loading my shotgun and sitting in the bathtub ready to blow my brains out. And I remember in that moment that, that was another awakening. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You've just survived all this shit and you've come through and you've struggled so hard to survive. Like you, I literally had to fight every day to just be alive and now I'm gonna kill myself? I'm like, this isn't me, like who is this? I remember that day I took the rest of the bottle, which I had, you know, it already had me on like 450 milligrams. I put it all in the trash from the press. not the way you're supposed to come off of it because for the next, month and a half to two months, I got this thing called brain zaps, where it's like you feel this electricity in your head, and it's something that happens with people that go on antidepressants. Like Psychiatrists and psychologists, like this is going to sound pretty blunt, but a lot of them don't have a fucking clue what they're doing, and we don't know what these medications do, and the problem in the U.S. right now, they're talking about gun control. What about pharmaceutical control?
0: The mental health care workers are going to be the most important. They have always been, but the problem is that there was um, a gap between science and the concept of spirituality. I, I, I don't like to use that word because people kind of get a little bit offbeat about it, but like the deep inner meaning of your, your consciousness, right? Your, what is your consciousness and what is, what is going on within and how can you tap into this intelligence that really is all around you like those those two are like they're hand in hand like the science and and consciousness and everything is is fused it's 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 like what Carl Edward Sagan said right the famous american astronomer i'm sure many people who are listening to this have heard of him he's written the book cosmos and the pale blue dot and he put it beautifully in his quote about science and spirituality he said the very act of understanding is a celebration of joining, merging, even if for a very modest scale with the magnificence of the cosmos. Science is therefore not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. going to read out how the Oxford Dictionary defines spirituality. It's the quality of being console- concerned with the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things, to look for something beyond what we can see in the reality that surrounds us and is us. I think the communication element of doctor to patient has been greatly developed in certain countries, I do, however, feel that there's so much work that needs to be done in regard to alternative medicine and weaving that into mainstream medicine, along with the way big pharma works. That's a whole other conversation, but being able to weave in a more comprehensive approach to listening to someone who's coming to you with a physical ailment, a disease, and asking them important questions like, what does your day look like on a regular basis? What are you um, going through at work, at home, over a series of sessions, which is almost merging therapy into the standard healthcare practice, And then also looking at nutrition at a deeper level. And that looks at, you know, there's different angles to it. I mean, are we eating local? Um, Are the things that we're picking off the shelf as useful to our bodies as we think they are? Are we even thinking about this? I follow Dr. Mark Heyman and it's fascinating how much of an effect food can have on our well-being from a mental well-being perspective and a physical well-being perspective. I mean, there are some great doctors who I know of who always ask about stress and ask about, you know, how you're feeling. There's tons of research out there that says when you have higher levels of cortisol, which is the stress hormone in your blood, your system is an imbalance and so illness is, almost inevitable if it's chronic stress and obviously you have the default syndrome where people are quick to diagnose you know even if you're not a healthcare worker you just want to help your loved ones so you immediately turn to pharmaceuticals what's your take on that especially when it comes to children
1: take a child put them in a classroom give him a a can of Coca-Cola and some gummy bears and then tell him to sit down and shut up for eight hours. Not going to happen. Now he's hyperactive. Oh, he has ADD. Give him some Ritalin. No, he's had too much sugar and he needs to go outside and play is what he needs. He doesn't need fucking medication. And it makes me so upset because the pills that are being given to people do not heal people. Mm -hmm. I've seen some examples. You know, I have some people that are very close to me that suffer with bipolar or you know um, uh, manic depression and again you know if you follow the DSM you can open the DSM uh, and basically diagnose yourself with anything you know what I mean you can self-diagnose you can but I know some people who are legitimately bipolar I know what they're like with lithium and I know what they're like without lithium. and I think in some cases and same with schizophrenia because those are the things that people say you know if you're schizophrenic or bipolar you should not work with plant medicines well you can it's not always that cut and dry. Yes, I agree, but if you've done work and you're in a healthy place, I think you can still work with it, but you can't be on medications. So again, you know, like another example, I think big pharma is obviously, I mean, some pharmaceuticals, like I had a, a stomach surgery at one point and I was going to have to go back in because I got an infection and I was given the option, do you want to take medication or do you want to have another surgery? Thank God for that medication because I didn't have to have another surgery. But they need to be. There needs to be a tighter sort of regulation on how they're done. Not incentives for doctors to give more, because that's how it works. The doctors get kickbacks the more they prescribe. And I actually had a medical doctor that came on one of our retreats, and she's doing something amazing. It's like her and I would talk for hours about you know like mental health and how to deal with sickness. And she never prescribes medicine. It's always the first thing she says. Do you exercise? Do you do yoga? Do you do breath? Yeah, right? that's
0: that is what what's is needed. Like? Yes. yes. A new checklist. A new yes. checklist.
1: <laughs> I'll never forget. It's like I saw something on MTV one time. It was Britney Spears telling the public, you know, we should just trust our presidents. It's like, fuck that. <laughs> <You should trust laughs> and take take the power in our own hands. Don't wait for the system to help us, because the system is not going to help us. You know, it's like in some ways it will, but it's like if we're looking to the system that created all this sickness to heal us, then we're looking in the wrong place. We really are. It's like it's all my hospital visits, it's like something that I always tell people when I'm training them, whether it be to help them, you know, get back in shape, it's like you can't you can't keep looking to the doctors to just give you the cure. You have to search for it yourself and find your own path. You know, oh, what do I do, doctor? And it's like, well, the doctor might just give you pills and not tell you to exercise and and do the things that are important and have community and do. You need to go and find that on your own. I mean, so after uh, I had sort of gotten over the the heavy addiction to drugs and pharmaceuticals that I dealt with, I moved to Thailand. Um, I lived in Thailand for about five years. I was in Thailand and I was managing, I first went to do yoga and uh, and fitness retreats and I was there doing that for probably about a year and a half and then another opportunity sort of popped up for me where there was a, a detox center um, that needed a new manager. They had lost their management, they had been falling out. Um, So I was brought in and basically just started managing the programs in Thailand. So I did that at that center for about three and a half years where that's where I learned a lot about sort of what brought me to Peru because the whole the whole theory we we operated on dr bernard jensen's theory of uh of bowel cleansing and tissue maintenance through what was referred to as hydrocholine therapy or kalimas or colonics mm-hmm. i don't know if you're familiar with that but it's a flushing of the bowel so they yeah. basically mm. um, yeah so you use it it's like a, a but we also mix that with daily fasting so people would come and go yeah. on fasting programs because that's something that to this day that i believe it's like if you study nature when animals get sick fasting for three days is a great way to boost your immune system
0: oh yes you know, oh yes
1: i so i worked with people in that capacity for almost four years where they would come in and i'm dealing with people from all over the world i mean we had a lot from uh uk we had a lot from dubai abu Dhabi, uh, china some of the sickest people that i've met have come from china oh, wow. business people like that have not seen the light you know they're pasty white they've not been out in the sun. And even if they were, there would be smog, they would be breathing, you know, like a lot of people from Beijing. So, And there are people from Australia. So what was really cool is that I I got to meet all these people and all these corporate types and people that were really driven and so successful, but their health was in shambles. They literally would crash land. So again, what I said, they're just this. They're just their head. You know, they're they're not connected to their body or their heart. They're just their head. So it's like Mm. they come and crash land. And they want to get in shape. So we put them, some of them would come and stay for a week, some would stay for two weeks. Um, some people would go on juice fasts or raw food diet, or they would do complete fasting with two kalimas a day. Um, and what I started to notice is that people would come, and after about a week or two weeks, they would be starting to look like a new person and they're really healthy. But obviously, they're not at work, they're not in their relationship, they're not in the environment that caused the sickness. So they come. They focus only on the physical. I got to lose, you know, six kilos in this amount of time. And I see them and they come and then they go and they go and they look healthy and they're great. Six months later, they come back. They're more overweight and more depressed than they were before they came the first time. And I started seeing this trend of how people were just using this, you know, like this one week retreat. Escapism. Yeah. And that's all this, they're basically using it as an addiction. Like I'm going to go take care of my health for a week or two. And I'm going to go back to destroying myself with drinking six scotches every night and working like all day and all night and not spending time with my family, not going outside, not doing this. So my biggest, you know, it'd be frustrating because I'd work with people and they'd get healthy, but then they'd go back. And I just found that, you know, you're not going to make any lasting changes. It was the same as me, the same pattern that I could go through all this work and rehab and work on myself, but I went back to the same environment. So it was only a matter of time. And I can say from my experience and seeing it doesn't matter how strong you are. It's just a matter of time. You need to remove yourself from the situations or make the changes that can help you cope with it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So. What I started seeing was all these workaholics and a-type personalities that are driven, and I want to go get this, and I'm doing this, and they're more and more overweight. A lot of them it stemmed from they wanted to get in shape, they wanted to do yoga, they wanna do this, but there was something deeper. There was something below the physical that emotionally, I don't know if they weren't hugged enough as a child, or you know, they had a horrible relationship, but there's something deeper than just, you know. The stress that like there's a root cause and trying to get to that root cause with some people is virtually impossible they don't want to talk about it because you take this person who runs several businesses who's in charge and in command and like their ego has gotten to the point they know everything you know what i mean like what are you going to tell me it's like well you're miserable so you obviously don't know everything because happiness is a big part of life that should we should all be you know able to enjoy which these people didn't so I I worked there and I just I noticed all these patterns of these people that you know they they could get their health in check as long as they weren't in their situation and then they would go back and I could never really quite you know I could get through to some people and it would help them and some people I had were success stories you know they kept the weight off and they kept training and they made real changes most of them left the corporate squeeze job that they were in that was soul crushing. You know, that's a big thing that I work with. So um, who I work for, I worked for a, a group of, of investors that had this place. And what happened at the retreat center is I took it from being, you know, I think there were maybe six guests a week to when I left, there were almost 30 new guests every week. We were doing different programs with meditation, yoga, fitness, but then the corporate came in. It was taken, the place was taken over by a group of investors that started to, do things like check, what are our costs? Yeah. So now when I put somebody on a juice fast, they're putting in half the amount of vegetables in the juice. For me, it's like, you yeah. wanna piss me off, water yeah. down my juice. Yeah. <laughs> Don't mess with my juice. Don't touch my juice So We, uh, we had a disagreement and I left. Um, I spent the next year, I had traveled, I had worked uh, as a, a coach down in the Maldives. I bounced between Maldives and uh, Abu Dhabi, Um, I had spent some time working. I got another job offer to go work in Thailand. Um, When I went back to Koh Samui, it just, things didn't work out. So it was like, it was my dream to have my own center that sort of, I would oversee and I would call the shots. I'm in the kitchen making sure all the juices going in where it's supposed to go. Um, (laughs) Things fell apart and it was just like, I just reached a point where, you know, okay, it's it's not going to happen. So I went back to Canada to sort of relocate um, and just think, what am I going to do? I mean, at the end of of all the the stuff in Thailand, I I again had something happen where uh, basically something ruptured in my my pancreas Mm -hmm. at the end of the Thai run, and I was rushed back to Canada. I arrived back in Canada, I was scanned, I was told that I had pancreatic cancer. It was probably due to all the years of drug addiction and alcoholism, the damage that I had done to my body. So the doctor basically told me, you probably have about four months left to live. So that's how I arrived back in Canada. Basically, what had happened is something had ruptured in my pancreas. They had done a scan, said I had pancreatic cancer. After a few more tests, they saw that it was just a pseudocyst, so something that had ruptured. Um, I had to have massive stomach surgery where they cut me open. They removed a piece of the pancreas, my gallbladder, a section of my intestine. Um, So that laid me up for quite some time. And again, like, what am I doing? So it was like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's something wrong with me, and there's all those patterns that, that keep coming up. Uh, I managed to rehab, and it had always been a dream of mine to come to Peru and work with shamans. You know, i had always, you know, I remember as a kid, my grandmother got me a subscription to the World Wildlife uh, Foundation, and I would always see the magazines, and I would really be going through them, and I'm like, where are these people from? You know, see all the feathers, in and then are like, seeing them living in the, in the jungle, I'm like, well, I want to go see how these people I've live.
0: I've always been fascinated by them as well
1: amazing so so like i said i had had the business deal in thailand you know my dream of creating my own center kind of crumbled away again because it all came down to money and you know it's like okay well i want to offer a great experience and it's like i don't mind charging a little bit more and it's like and like you said you don't like to use the, the word uh, spirituality and and i don't either because i feel now that spirituality has almost done the same thing as the word god exactly so,
0: it's really god. sad i'm sad about that because that's okay. if i want to use that label and i'm comfortable with it i should be allowed to and if you don't you should be allowed to do that too but no judgment so, and,
1: and you know and, and i get it too the, the reason i i'm scared of the word spirituality is because i have traveled in sort of the yoga community circles the meditation circles throughout thailand and and i have noticed that again it's very culty Mm -hmm. you don't find a good school you can i just find like with spirituality you know there's the the, what is the term spiritual bypass so like people that just they just regurgitate terms that they've heard you know what i mean so it's like Mm -hmm. oh who would you be if only you could get out of your own way and be the change and, and it's just like these people are they don't they don't understand the wisdom they're just regurgitating it. so for mm-hmm. me it's kind of like well you know are you the change
0: it's like, <laughs> Tell <me really>? <laughs> you.
1: it's like you know like i see the the male yoga teacher who's banging half the class and he's like you know, what I mean? all, all these dirty things going on it's like be the change and embrace the light and it's like all this like love and light it's like i always take that with the grain of salt because some people do embody it but I just feel like it's it's become mixed spirituality. It's just, it's another thing that's been taken over. And now there's these people that do what's called spiritual bypassing where they feel like they've awakened and they're enlightened and now they're going to tell everybody else how to do it, but they're going to stop working on themselves. You know what I mean? So that's the part that scares me. And, and with the word, like, again, like I remember going through the 12 step program, everything was God, this and God, that. And it's like my experience with God was I would see, like I had a lot of friends that, you know, were abused by priests, you know, and it's like, well, that doesn't sound like God to me either. So it's like, there's just there's become all these different thoughts and feelings around certain words. So for me, yeah. like, I've come to embrace God, but still with spirituality. I'm like, because people say, oh, he runs a spiritual retreat. And it's like, yes and no. It's like, I've created a space where you can believe in whatever you want and you can come and nobody's going to tell you that you're wrong and that this is like, I've been to centers down here in Peru where literally, you know, like I see the person that's managing the center and they're miserable in their own life. And Mm -hmm. all they're doing is just, is preaching to everybody else what to do with theirs but they're not working on themselves and it's like at our retreat there's no guru it's like there's no person that sits on a chair and everybody bows to and you know this is the shaman you know kisses feet and you know whatever he wants it's like no 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 we're all humans this is you know we're in the age now where i believe in some traditions but i think some traditions need to to step into the present they need to let go of the things that are holding them back so where you said science and spirituality need to come together it's like yeah
0: it's about it's it's the time
1: yes it is time it's Mm. time for people to stop worrying about what everybody else is doing and focus on themselves better themselves and once you've worked on yourself enough try to strengthen your community and lead by example and if we do that, we create these pockets. And that's what I've tried to do down here in Peru is create this pocket that's like, you can be a yogi, you can be a Buddhist, you can be, you know, a Muslim, you can be black, you can be white, you can be whatever you are. It's like, even with our team, like, you know, Kunti's a, a, a Mexican Mexican woman. Um, Pepe, our shaman, is a Shipibo shaman. I'm Canadian. It's like, you know, we have men, we have women, we have the people that we bring together. It's like, to me, that's what psychedelics have shown me is that we're all connected so i try to create an environment that reflects that and at no point is anybody going to tell you you're on the wrong path i'm there to guide people through the experience but you're there to have your own experience so your experience is going to be completely different than the guy from silicon valley maybe there'll be you know similarities but maybe because he's a man he has different traumas you're a woman you have different issues that you want to deal with so Basically, we just wanted to create a space that's not heavy on the spiritualism, the woo-woo, you know, like, you know, everybody hold their crystals now, and we're all going to do this, and everybody chant this way. If you like crystals and you're into crystal healing, good. Me so much? Not really. And I have other dudes that I work with that if you get them to hold a crystal and tell them to pray, you know, they're just going to look at you like you're crazy. I'm not going to judge either side of it. Whatever works for you. Basically, that's, you know, that had been my dream. So, What brought me down here to Peru was, you know, I wanted to set the center up in Thailand. And I did have for a while a nice setup, but I was lacking the plant medicine. I saw all these sick people. That you know, like there's a joke that uh, that I always like because I have a lot of Irish and Russian friends through martial arts, and they say the Russians and the Irish are impervious to any type of therapy. I'm like, yes, except for psychedelics. <laughs> 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 like you could be the toughest guy in the world. It's like give me, give me a night off. you know, like all these different. They So the next morning, you know, after you've done all this together. You're much more likely to open up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what got you got you into plant medicine. When did you think of exploring it and what is your belief system around it?
1: Well, I had always, um, where I grew up, I had started experimenting with um, psilocybin, so magic mushrooms, Yep. when I was just young. But when I had experimented with those, it was more in like a party scene. You know what I mean? So it was like out at a party playing some music, drinking some beers, and you eat a handful of mushrooms. So my first couple experiences with psychedelics were actually with psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And at first I wasn't using it so much as like a therapy, but I was using it just to sort of like to party and have fun. And I had one really heavy night where I took too much and ended up alone and went through a really heavy process and I was like I was still too young and I don't suggest psychedelics for you know I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and it's like I look back on them and it's like I can't take it back and I don't regret it it happened how it would have but I would think that most you'd want to have your brain fully formed before you start dabbling with psychedelics and you'd want to do other work um, so for me it's like you know, there's all this like, um, are you familiar with maps? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it just featured Tim Ferriss is a huge, uh, huge supporter of them. And he just had the the creator of maps on his podcast, which is really fascinating. And they're talking about that. So um, can you you touch on that a little bit? Well, it's just it's an organization that's run by this doctor, I, I can't remember his name at this point. But he firmly believes in the benefits of psychedelics, uh, assisting people with PTSD, mm-hmm. depression, any form of mental illness. I mean, he's a legitimate doctor, and he's backed by Tim Ferriss. And if any of your listeners know Tim Ferriss is, like, this is a legitimate businessman, entrepreneur who's you know worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Now he's made himself you know self-made. So these are the people that are getting behind. Tim Ferriss talks openly about his struggles with PTSD. Um, he didn't touch on that podcast, but he at one point in his life was going to commit suicide. He speaks openly about it and, and psychedelics helped him with this. So maps, what they're doing is they're trying to, to demonstrate and show the benefits of psychedelics and how they can be used and not just psychedelics, but also marijuana. Cause it's like, For me, as somebody that works with plant medicines, it's amazing how many people hate on marijuana. How about how can you hate on such a beautiful plant? Like after my car accident, I spent a month completely sedated with morphine and oxys and drooling on myself. I had a friend bring me an ounce of really good blueberry Kush. I got off the medication. I'm in my wheelchair doing laps around the hospital, smoking a joint in a snowstorm because it made me want to get up and go with it. The other pain, like it took away my pain, but it also motivated me. You know what I mean? like. And on this other side of this, I have friends, they smoke pot, they eat Twinkies and they play video games. I smoke pot, I go do an hour and a half of yoga. So it's like, you know, is it your medicine? Maybe it's not. If you're going to be sitting in front of the TV for all day because you're high, probably not your, you know, your medicine because it's hurting you. But for me, I get, you know, it helps me with chronic pain issues. Look at the benefits of CBD, you know, like, do you want CBD or do you want chemotherapy? Let's give the CBD exactly. a try first, you know. Like exactly. That's
0: and epilepsy as well, you know, it, it's known epilepsy. to help. with. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's all about perspective. All about use or abuse. Are you using uh,
1: it? Are you abusing it? The government doesn't educate people in that because it's easier to get money with the big pharma of and course. have them control everything. And it's, so it's like, again, it's like some doctors are good, some are bad. People say well, we should just trust the doctor. It's like, what kind of doctor do you have? Do you have a doctor that's getting kickbacks from big pharma to keep you hooked on pills that you don't need? You know. It's but like, I believe
0: there. There are some states right now that, that do prescribe CBD oil, like Calif- the state of California, I believe, does
1: that. Well, Canada finally now it's yeah. fully legal, like marijuana, yeah. like THC and CBD are fully legal in Canada, many states in the US. Um, and that's what fascinates me, is down here in Peru, ayahuasca is legal. Huachuma, the local cactus that has mescaline, legal. Marijuana, illegal. You know, I know no people way. that is, yes tell people i mean i've known people that have suffered with depression that are drinking every day i'm like hey you know what the alcohol is going to make you even more depressed mm-hmm. you no know, yeah maybe it's like i can't get off and i'm like well then maybe smoke a few joints and see if you can get off it that way and some you know i'm not i don't advocate anything or push anything on anybody that they don't feel comfortable with but maybe you know so oh well that's a little extreme i don't want to you know smoke pot it's like maybe smoke pot before you go on antidepressants and see if it can help you through that phase and then get off that yeah you know what I mean? They like, consider just right away, like you said, like there's a pill for everything now. You know, there's um you know, somebody that I have a lot of respect for that's doing a lot right now, Wim Hof. Oh,
0: you Wim know, Hof is amazing. He was down medicine. at your retreat, right?
1: He was. He was here with his family for one week. Um, Wim doesn't need plant medicines. Wim, Wim He's awesome.
0: I do his breath work and I feel all tingly and happy when I'm done. Yeah. I've got like a nice high, and I'm like, yeah, this is good. Yeah, self-regulation you
1: your own breath yeah
0: that's his thing yeah you get yeah. high on your own supply i love it
1: exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I spent i spent a week with him and his family and like i said what really i learned about that week is when he arrived you know i was i've always looked up to the man so i was like first i'm like i'm not gonna go fanboy or anything like that way he's like him and i clicked instantly because all we talked about the whole week was mental health i mean there's a video um so for any of your listeners that want to check out something really cool, um, there's a Wim Hof, it's about an eight-minute video. It's Wim Hof Word Porn. There's a, a place, a site called Word Porn. Mm-hmm. So there's a video called Wim Hof Word Porn. And in it, he talks about um, he had four children with his first wife. His first wife was manic depressive, bipolar. Yeah. Um, she jumped out of their eight-story window and committed suicide i heard it's story Mm. yeah it's like in the video it really hits home because it's like here's a man who's hell-bent on helping people for the right reasons you know people can there's always going to be haters you know i get haters all the time oh you're making money off plant medicine plant medicine should be free and oh whim's making money off breath it's like we need to provide for our families we need to provide for ourselves but we're still offering something It's It's such a valuable
0: service. And people talk anyway, there's judgment either way. So you do what your heart says. This work is needed. People need to know how to use these tools that are available to them in nature and within
1: themselves. The thing that that really struck me with, you know, after hearing Wim, I'd known Wim's story and why he was on this mission, but it's like, you know, here's a man who raised four children on his own and his wife had, you know, left a huge hole in the family. And I was like, I remember talking to him. I said, you know, that must've been so hard when your wife committed suicide. And he was like, it was almost for the family. Like it was a relief because the lead up to that had been so fucking horrible you know when you deal like i've i have a family member who suffers with bipolar disorder and it's been hell it's been absolute hell because you never know when the mood swings are coming you don't know how to do it's like how to deal with them you don't know how to help them you know and it's you want to be close but there's always walls up and there's always like a drama and there's always like you know drama and trauma straight across the board all the time you know it's very frustrating so talking with him and spending the week with Wim, it's like i saw that the medicines that we use on the retreat, it's not just psychedelics, because psychedelics will show you a path, but you have to walk it. So do your breath work, you know, do your yoga. And when I watch Wim, it's like, he's always laughing. He's sharing his energy. You know, he. and for me, it's like playing music. We played music the whole time. We laughed together. And it's like, to me, those are two of the strongest medicines. Laughter, laughter, and, and also, Oh you know, yes.
0: Music so, and dance, like the, the, music and the dance, movement.
1: movement. Whatever you want to do. You like kickboxing, good. You like ballroom dancing, good. You like yoga, go for that. Like tai chi, whatever. Like I'm not going to hate on anybody that they're moving their body. It's like maybe it's not my thing, but it's their thing. And that's the whole thing of like biodiversity and, and letting each other explore who we are instead of like this is the way you heal and this is the experience you need to have. The Week with Wim was all about singing, Um, movement breath work and then hot and cold therapies you know obviously we did some ice baths we did some steam sauna so with our retreats now it's like it's not just about the psychedelics it's about also sharing stories like i have learned so much over the last 10 years because i've been gifted with a job where i meet 10 to 20 new people every week you know what I mean? And I get to hear their stories and hear their struggles and what part of the world they come from and different challenges they face. So it's like we can learn from storytelling. then when we laugh together, music, movement, breath work, hot and cold therapy, spending time in nature, and then using the psychedelics. Like there's more than just one thing. I mean, I had a, a retreat last year, or was it last year, yeah, it would have been in the fall of last year where I had just, it was pretty much all a men's retreat. Um, Kunti was there serving toad medicine. We worked with the toad medicines, and we worked with Wachuma. We didn't have ayahuasca, and we spent the week doing physical fitness, climbing mountains. So it's like it doesn't all need to be about the ayahuasca. There's many different medicines, and I think one of the most important medicines, especially down here in the Andes Mountains, is getting out and hiking. It's amazing. When you're in the mountain ranges down here, you're reminded of how small you are do you know what i mean so it's like i take a little break from social media and you know and i go out and look at the mountains i'm like none of this shit's gonna matter in 100 (laughs) years there'll be a whole new series of problems (laughs) (laughs) just take your time try to be kind and compassionate especially with ourselves which is always hard and work through it you know it's so yeah that's that's why i love what i do because i know that it really works i had um I won't share the names of the people that I had, but I had uh, a young gentleman here that was voted one of top, uh, Forbes' top 40 under 40. He came down and he experienced the toad medicine. Uh, the toad is uh, referred to as Bufo alvarius or yeah. um, Colorado river toad. Mm-hmm. Mike Tyson has now been a huge advocate for it. It's saved his life and changed how he, it's uh, the active ingredient is 5-MeO-DMT. Um, they say it's so that, very
0: strong, yeah. And you've got to be you have got to be in the right space, so to say.
1: So to to just Tell sum me. things up, mm-hmm. when I had my head-on car crash when I was 19 years old, I had the out-of-body experience that I told you about, and I talked to my dead grandfather and the white light and the energy. Twenty years later, I smoked uh, Desert Toad, Bufo Alvarius. It recreated that out of body experience almost exactly minus the trauma. So, all the lessons from a near death experience, expressing gratitude, um, realizing you're connected to everything, you know, wanting to be kinder, all those lessons minus the trauma. So, for me, toad is extremely powerful. 15 to 20 minutes, you smoke the secretion from this toad, and it'll give you a near death experience or an out of body experience. Everybody's different, but many of the people that I work with have that leaving their body and then realizing that they're more than just their body they're more than just their traumas and for me excuse me it is the most powerful medicine for me personally i've worked with soldiers that have you know ptsd that have done three or four tours of duty in iraq and they're just just completely traumatized you know and they've had no way and they don't want to talk about it but the toad can help dig into those deep layers it's like I always tell people, you know, like if you're an intellectual and you have a therapist, you can steer the conversation. Sometimes you're smarter than your therapist and you can manipulate the conversation. You're dealing with plant medicines. You ain't manipulating shit. You're going to look at what you need to look at. And it's not going to be, you're not talking, you're not, inter- you're feeling, you're going into those deep layers. And I feel when I have the tone. Uh, Johns Hopkins University has just started conducting more in-depth studies with the five meo DMT and studying the peptides that are found in the secretion. So there's more than just the psychedelic experience that's happening. So I had this young gentleman, uh, Forbes top 40 under 40. He had the toad experience, and he just laid there as peaceful as could be for about 15 minutes. You know, some people flail their arms, and some people get up and you know reach for the sky, and other people just lay there. Some all different he just laid there and he was quiet and after 15 minutes he opened his eyes and he sat up and he looked over at me and he had tears streaming down his cheeks and I'm like are you okay and I went over by him and he hugged me and he said that's the first time in my life that I've ever been able to shut off my mind and he was so grateful for that he's like I know now it exists you know what I mean so I was like Some of the greatest minds that we have, like you hear people talk like Elon Musk or all these people that they're just so, they they can't shut the brain off. It's like, they're just go, go, go. And it's like, that's a form of, I don't want to say mental illness because the toad can help with this. Like I said, firsthand experience. I watched this young fella, Komodo, his experience, and it's just the gratitude. And I still talk to him. You know, the last time I talked to him, he's like, he'll never forget that experience because It's the first time in his life he's tried meditation, he's tried yoga, he's tried all these different things, and it's like it's never worked. But I almost feel like you don't need to smoke toad all the time. Maybe that one time opens the doorway or creates the pathway that now you can access it on your own. You know what I mean? Like I notice after having toad ceremonies a week or two after, I can sit and meditate, and I kick back into almost like the feeling of the toad. So it's created that pathway that I can find that inner peace now and that Mm. love so it's, like, again, it's, it's
0: like you've built you've built the memory it's a timestamp in your brain you've had the experience and now you can you can recreate
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's no, beautiful it's absolutely amazing it's <laughs> like that, that's the best part of my job is to watch people have breakthroughs and it's again i don't do anything i just stand by it's like all i need to do is like you know let them have that experience you know and it's like you're not doing anything and that's that's the other thing with this type of work is you need to separate yourself flat. Terrence McKenna, I don't know if you're familiar with Terrence McKenna. He's, yeah, but his one of his quotes is my favorite of all time. It's follow plants, not gurus. And it, for me, it's, like, it's perfect because some of the most therapeutic uh, psilocybin sessions I've had, me eat the mushrooms, go out into nature alone. I don't need somebody, you know, when you're a newbie and you're just coming into this, it's very scary. But once you learn how to work with psychedelics, you can work with them on your own uh, as long as you're responsible. You can microdose. You know, I know many people that are microdosing psilocybin down in the Silicon Valley. Almost all those programmers are microdosing LSD, psilocybin. I know fighters that are using and inspiring sessions because they're microdosing, they're seeing things before they happen. So it's like, you know, I don't care it's what the performance you
0: Performance acceleration. It's like a, it's, it's getting into flow state. It's so exciting what is possible once we really understand the science behind what's happening within us. And while the different paths to tap into this peak performance or creativity or healing, um, I think we both acknowledge that there are multiple paths to expanding consciousness, and also it really depends on the readiness of an individual, the amount of time someone has to, you know, get away and experience these things, as well as the, the risk um, that a person's willing to take to explore different avenues. It's um, it's something that's addressed in the book Ste- Stealing Fire by Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler. I want to ask you what would you say is the number one thing that people need to work on?
1: Is self-love. Most people don't like themselves, unfortunately. I notice that. Most people are extremely critical and I don't know if they're carrying wounds from from childhood traumas and you know, you know, obviously that's where a lot of our our wounds come from and we during the formative years, you know, a lot of people have been told unfortunately, you know, this is just what I've seen through the work that People just, they don't accept themselves. They don't like themselves. They want more self-love. They want to be kinder with themselves. Like I know when I was going through all all my things, like if I ever met somebody that talked to me the way I talked to myself, I'd punch them in the face. You know what I mean? Like, like who is this person? It's like, but we talk to ourselves. We're so horrible. Like you're a piece of shit and you didn't do this right. And you didn't do that. So definitely number one, I would say is self-love. A lot of people are missing, you know, that, that self-love and they're missing it from childhood or wherever it may be that seems to be the number one and then the number two which is pretty much related to number one is their interpersonal relationships that seems to be that a lot of people come down when they've had a bad breakup or they're ready to have a breakup or you know they're questioning and it stems from again not loving themselves so it's like you're constantly beating yourself up and you have a partner that tells you how great you are you're going to think either they're a liar or you know what i mean it's just So definitely the number one is self-love and people looking for that and then number two is trying to work through relationship problems which is, like i said just stems back to your own problems you know if mm-hmm. you're usually if you're happy with yourself and you can meet somebody you can have a healthy relationship but you know i see a lot of codependency that you know i just had people on the last retreat that came as a couple and it's like they didn't give each other space you know and that's what my job is and it's very hard when you've got two adults who are very successful to say okay we're gonna have a time out now we're gonna <laughs> separate you guys and it's like have your own experience don't worry about what she's doing and it's like you know so sometimes i've seen you know the psychedelic save relationships but uh then on other times if the relationship's not healthy it usually shows people that it's not and they have a separation um so those are the two big ones as far as like healing and what people want to do to heal but what i've also found is a lot of the people that we've been gifted to work with are people that are looking to expand their consciousness and creativity which is my like? Don't get me wrong. I love to help people heal, but I also like to work with people that are already fairly balanced. That like to go in deeper and expand. Yes. And that yes. to me is the where it's it's fun at that point. Um, it can be very difficult working with people when they're going through past traumas. It can be equally as rewarding. But my main goal with this project is to help the people that need healing, but also to bring leaders down here I mean we've had some very interesting characters come in and help those leaders sort of expand their consciousness and think of new ideas to help their communities and help the people around them and that has that that web effect where it's like we are all connected so let's influence one another in a positive way and that's there's a lot of power in that so that's where my main focus is now and I like I said when I look to guys like Tim Ferriss which are donating and helping donate millions of dollars to maps you know for any of your listeners go check out maps.org because they're doing some great research it's an amazing website Um, you know it's it's finally starting to come into mainstream a little bit, which is good. You know, it's not all like, you know, oh, you're taking mushrooms. And, you know, I always have people say to me, oh, Christian is down in Peru tripping balls and getting high. And I'm like, <laughs> have the experience with me. And you'll see that it's not exactly getting high. It's actually deep, deep, you know, emotional work, shadow work. If you're like, familiar with Carl Jung, a lot of people that, you know, are starting to see that people are, uh, bringing together the work of Carl Jung with the psychedelic experience, yep. all his shadow work, which is perfect. You know, and it's like, you get into Joseph Campbell, you know, the hero's journey. It's like, there's no bigger hero's journey for me than the psychedelic journey. That's a hero's journey because you are going into yourself, into the darkest parts. It's so much easier to tell your friends what they need to do and how they need to heal. But then when you look at yourself, it's like, oh, I don't like that. That's uncomfortable. Mm. It's like, yeah, then, then that too, it's mm. like, you know, I still get it. I'm still like, you asked me about enlightenment. It's like some days I feel enlightened, other days I feel like a Neanderthal. <laughs> you, know, <it's> like,
0: <laughs> and you're, you know what, and I love that you said that. That's honest, you know? A lot of people who've who had the awakening or they're in the space teaching or coaching people, you know, they, they try to maintain this this facade, yeah. That they're yeah. always in that space. And I just don't, I I can't buy that because you're having a human experience. So I believe in the soul. Obviously, if you can have an out-of-body experience, there is more to life than this, right? But I be- believe in our, in our eternity, so to say. So when we're here having a human experience, we're obviously going to be having human emotions. And our days are so different. So there is no way that you can constantly be in an enlightened state and you know it's so important for people like you who are in the work doing the good work to to say that because it's it's real and it also gives the sense of connection with whoever comes in
1: and that's the whole that that's the environment I wanted to create an honest environment that's not it's not all love and light. there's a lot of hate and shadows there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of darkness. So let's look at that too. It's not that there's not love in life, but it's like, it's, there's no finish line to this. And people say, oh, I'm, you know, I just want to heal. It's like, you're never going to completely heal. Life will traumatize you and smash you again. Just when you think that you're, you know, oh, I'm fine and I'm perfect. And now I've got that. It's, it's the same as getting in physical condition. It's not like, now I'm in good shape. I'll put that over there and I'm going to go focus on something else. No, no, you need to focus on that every day. Because if you don't focus on it, you're going to lose it. And I've gone in and out and that's one of my biggest pet peeves is these centers with these enlightened people that wear all white and it's like they're pure and it's all like I'm not hating on that but it's like it's not my style you know what I mean it's like like, okay you can wear all white om shanti you know go to your ashram do whatever you got you're
0: you're the misfit I love it the rebel the rebel of the spiritual retreats there needs to be a space for that because I'm one of those people
1: (laughs) and I know you are and I knew that when I talked to you at first because and there are more people like you. And I feel that people like you and myself, that we're not going to do the spiritual bypass. We're not going to wear all white. We're not going to, you know, do our chance and just accept. It. We're going to seek our own path and seek our own knowledge. And we're going to be okay with that. And we're going to empower other people to do the same. You know absolutely missions. Like, let's drop all the pretentious, you know, I'm healed and now bow to your guru and you know, like no, no, no. Life is the guru and it's going to teach you, and you need to listen to the messages that come in. It Life is
0: the guru. Yes.
1: It truly really is. That's the best teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, we hold a space that let people have an experience. But then how they integrate it is going to be their own choice. We're there to hold their hand for the first couple of days after and I stay in touch with people. but you have to take your power back. You have to take your power back. Like, don't wait for somebody to, to, to save you. Like in you know, all my hospital trauma visits, like I would be in a bed next to somebody that had half the injuries that I had, and I recovered twice as quick because they're waiting for the doctor to heal them, like, the doctor's not going to heal you. Get in your wheelchair and start doing laps. Start doing workouts. Start doing some breath work. Like, eat healthy food. Drink water. Like, take your power back. I see the guy in the bed next to me. He's, like, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and eating McDonald's in his recovery. I'm like, you're in for a long recovery, dude. Like, you're going to go through depression because you're not getting proper nutrients and minerals. Like, these are all the things. And I believe that it's what you touched on. The problem is. There's not enough education. Yeah, Too many people, like if you look back to our, our generation, like my parents, my grandparents' generation, it was just trust your doctor. Don't ever ask any questions. The doctor knows. Like the doctor was put up on a pedestal. It's like, again, I've had great doctors and bad doctors. You know, we can't just expect people to heal us for us. You know, it's not Yes, bad.
0: absolutely. And I think there needs to be, there needs to be like a global challenge where people actually think about, you know, with all this stuff about let's save the world, make it a better place, kumbaya style, like, it, <laughs> it, look, it's amazing. And I work with a lot of people who are doing some amazing impact work. Hats off to them. At least someone's doing it. But there's also a lot of preachers who aren't necessarily doing anything and they're just kind of PR stunting the whole thing, right? So you need to be able to differ between the two. But in the space of healthcare, in the space of mental health, in the space of consciousness, There's so much that need that like there the educational element and also the tapping into the medical system, which is a whole other story, right? Like that's a whole other and I mean I I know that you're following all the content around that as am I, you know? It's 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 crazy. It's crazy what's happening. This COVID nineteen is going to be this the realization of oh maybe I should be trying new things to better my mental health. Maybe I should be exploring what the health consciousness means, or being able to self-regulate, or what what breath work means, and why people who are actually doing breath work feel more at ease versus me. You know, and and Does you can works? yes, and you can see people asking these questions now, and I'm like ah oh, yes, this is awesome. You know, it could also be just moving, like getting up and moving from your chair or from the front of the TV for five minutes that can shift your mood, a little bit of movement creates a dopamine release. I mean, this is not new to many people. It's out there in mainstream media now. Couple that with some nutritional knowledge. Couple that with some breath work if you're having a panic attack or you feel anxiety. And there you have it. You know, as a unique human, you can explore for yourself the combination that works. And if you feel like you're centered or you're creating a more wholesome experience in your life, great but if you feel like there there is something missing curious you want to explore other avenues well psychedelics are is another pathway to healing deep trauma old wounds that you know is stifling your progress similarly it's a great way to tap into creativity and almost see the peak of the mountain before even getting there and so you you see it and then you're back in the human experience and now you know that there's work to be done and you need to climb that mountain you're you 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 have you have tasted the sweetness of victory so to say so it it's optional but it's there and i think That's an important statement to make. I feel like people just need to know that it's an option to explore and when you don't know anything about it right you need to explore it and you don't have to be a hippie
1: you don't have to be a exactly exactly stigma around it it's like you know the stigma around these medicines after the whole you know Nixon you know and and Basically, psychedelics were forced underground, and that's why MAPS is so important because we spent decades because of some stupid politician who was completely ignorant of the benefits and, you know, outlawed the psychedelics and outlawed the research. We lost, you know, like all the research in psychedelics went underground. So when it goes underground, they're doing the best they can, but then it's not legit. It's not being you know, followed the way it should be. It's not being questioned. It's not, you know, now again, it is, you know, it's like, because we can't group ayahuasca, wachuma, marijuana in with crack cocaine, heroin, like completely different. Though Crack cocaine and heroin are meant to numb and, you know, and sort of turn things down, like your pain, they numb your pain, they numb your consciousness, you know, like alcohol numbs your consciousness. I'm not saying don't have a drink, but if alcohol is legal, then why the fuck are psychedelics illegal? You know, show me the detriment to psychedelics and people experimenting with their consciousness. If anything, we create more free thinkers that will come up with good solutions to modern problems. And instead, you know, they're being outlawed and they're still being looked down upon, which is my biggest frustration, you know, even the fact that I'm in Peru and in Peru, marijuana is illegal. It's like, well, we're allowed to drink ayahuasca. Who decides this and who has the right to tell anybody how, what they do with their consciousness? You know, it's like, that's a problem.
0: But you see people, the thing is people don't even know that the two are linked and people don't even know conscious. The word consciousness is so heavy that when I use it, sometimes you know, who's just like, "What are you talking about?" And if you if you don't if you're not having those conversations, you just don't know. And then the minute you hear a psychedelic, you automatically your mind goes, "Oh, this is taboo." You know what? Like we don't need that. So if you don't have some information on one aspect of what this can do, which is the bigger picture, which is, music ceremonies are way of um, well, one of the ways of being able to see the top of the mountain without necessarily climbing it. So you have this peak experience through the use of plant medicine, psychedelics, and be able to witness this extreme joy of, you know, hey, whoa, we're much more than our bodies, but then how do you integrate when you come back down is the question. And also, why am I doing this? Is it just because it's this new fad or what am I after? And, And the three things that I keep hearing come to mind is deep healing, increased creativity, and people who have a yearning for knowledge beyond the self, beyond this body. A lot of education needed in that space. I want to talk a little bit about your shaman, Pepe.
1: Okay, so um, Pepe is uh, our shaman who conducts all the ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, he's featured in a documentary that's found on Netflix called The Last Shaman. So for anybody that's interested to sort of get an idea of, of Pepe's work, he's featured in that documentary. Um, there's a lot of uh, suspect characters in that documentary, but Pepe is... Um, he comes from a long lineage of Shipibo shamans, So his tribe is referred to as Shipibo Canivo, and they're located in just outside of a city called Pucalpa, which is down along the Amazon. Um, he's from a village called Santa Rosa, which lays right on the border between Peru and Brazil. Um, he comes from a fishing town. Now, Pepe's father was killed when he was just a, a young boy, and he went to live with his uncle, and his uncle is also a fairly famous shaman who works um, He works in, uh, in Italy and France. He travels quite a bit. He's starting to get older now, but he, he was taught by his father and then passed it down to, to uh, Pepe, which um, you know, I've worked with many different shamans since I've been down here. And you know, Pepe is very special because Pepe, he's been through his own traumas. Um, he's had his own struggles in his life and he's helped heal himself and his, his community. Um, not all shamans are good. So I, I want to touch on that. I mean, I've worked with some sh- shamans that, you know, uh, again, I, I, have read a lot of Terrence McKenna and I always refer to him because I feel that he was sort of like the godfather of bringing psychedelics, one of them anyway. Um, a lot of shamans are, can be tricksters. Mm-hmm. So they perform this beautiful ceremony, but they're not really doing it from a place of, of caring or wanting to help. And I'm a pretty good judge of character. And like I said, I've gone through probably about four shamans before I got to Pepe. And if you watch the documentary, and oh, spoiler, alert, spoiler alert for those who decide to watch it, uh, I am going to give a little bit of info about that documentary. It shows him trying to help people and heal. And there's an organization which labeled itself as nonprofit, which is probably a straight-up lie because they were there for the prophet. Um, Pepe had a falling out, and he was actually kicked out of his village. And at the end of the documentary, it shows Pepe working in Lima, which is the capital of Peru. It's a, a city of about ten million people. It's a, not the nicest place. It's you know, it's very packed in. It's a full-on, you know, full-on city with a lot of a uh, lot of shadows and a lot of dark parts. But Pepe, at the end of the documentary, is shown working in a garage covered in grease so here's this man who's a very powerful shaman but he's also the type of man that he's going to do anything to provide for his family and that's what i saw do you know what i mean so it's like that's one of those things that in pepe i saw this man who he's going to do anything to provide for his children his wife his mother he's going to do anything to me that's somebody that's embodying what a strong figure is, you know, strong father figure. So for him, he's willing to do anything to provide for his family, but I think it would be a tragedy to not have him do what he's gifted to do, to mm. to provide for his family. Do you know what I mean? So we're about to try to just send his village people like, i work with him here in the sacred valley we fly him up to um, the sacred valley to work with us but i also send people down to the jungle and something that after covid lifts you know people that maybe can't afford the the cushy nice experience of having you know a nice bed to sleep in if people want to go and have the authentic jungle experience we'll provide that as well which will help pepe's community um like bringing them people that's how they provide for the family and you know they're struggling right now, as most people are, because there's not people going to the to the jungle to have these ceremonies. Um, Pepe's style is uh, sort of. I'll give you a rundown on what a ceremony looks like. Uh, when working with Pepe, we have uh, what's called a maloka. It's like a, basically like a yoga temple or a little you know enclosed area. They're different in the jungle here. It's a little colder at night, so they're all enclosed. They're usually round. You know, uh-huh. it helps, they believe, with the energy. Um, I've worked in places that are, are long and sort of narrow, which are very bad because it tends to be things like when you're in the psychedelics, things hide in the shadows and in the corners, whereas with a round room, the energy tends to go up and out. There's like a little um, window at the top where you can feel the energy come up and out. Um, so how we do it is Pepe usually goes in and uh, Kunti, uh, part of our other team, the Mexican woman who works with us, Um, they work together so she supports him in the ceremony Um, so what we do is we set the beds up in a in a circle and Pepe will go in with Kunti and they basically they smoke their tobacco pipes so they have a tobacco down here called Mapacho. Mapacho is believed to um, cleanse the area much like Apollo Santo they say a prayer and it's always one of those things that people you know it's different cultures. Where I come from, tobacco causes cancer, and it's, you know, a horrible thing. (laughs) It's like, it's it's not warding off evil spirits, it's actually giving you evil spirits. (laughs) They believe in the opposite. That Through smoking the pipe, they say a prayer, and it's a tradition. So, again, I respect that, but for some of our guests who are tobacco sensitive, which I am, I can't be around, but we don't go in, we let them do the whole cleansing with the tobacco, and they say their prayer. And everybody comes in, And we make sure that everybody has at least an hour with the lights on to sit in front of Pepe. And he's very attentive. And what I've noticed is different with him from other shamans is he really listens and tries to understand what people are going through. And sort of what I try to help with is bridging the gap between how can a man who's grown up in the jungle understand the struggles of somebody in the Western world? Whereas how can somebody in the Western world really benefit from these ancient medicines? Where can we bring them both together? Mm-hmm. So it's not too far to one side. So communication is the big one. So all of our guests communicate for at least an hour and set an intention. Very important before the ayahuasca. I always refer to an intention as almost like an anchor. Yep. So if the sea gets really rough and you're getting thrown around, and you know, you're in the psychedelic experience, you can put your anchor down that keeps you sort of, you know, you have something, a mantra to focus on. Breath work and, and having an intention are two very valuable tools for approaching an ayahuasca G-
0: Give us an example of an intention.
1: I'll give you uh, an example of how to set an intention and then how not to set an intention. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so people that come down, you know what, it's like, people are like, one intention is, I... I want to have more love and compassion and patience with myself. Mm-hmm. I want, you know, I want to have love and acceptance for who I am and patience for myself. And that person will go over that. So when they're in the ceremony, I want love and patience for myself, and they can focus on that's what they want to get out of it. Whereas some people will say, "Well, I just don't want to hate myself so much, and I don't want to," and then they put they frame it in a negative aspect where all you hear is hate. I don't want to hate myself. Well, no, no, switch it to the positive so you're not even using that word. So when people approach something, really focus on what you want. Don't focus on what you don't want. And it seems simple, but you'd be amazed at how many intellectual people I've met. I just don't want to hate myself so much. And it's like, okay, well, then what do you want? You know. So setting intentions, something like that. Um, so, oh, I don't want my mind to be so busy. No, no, I want to be able to quiet my mind. You know, so you frame it in the way of what you want and you really focus on that. So when shit starts to get crazy, which it usually does, you have that to focus on and then you're you're doing the work because you're actually targeting what you want. Yeah. So that, that's my best advice for people. Wherever whenever you work with any type of plant medicine. Focus on what you want and what you want to get out of the experience. Don't focus on what you want to stop or what you want to. Don't focus on that. You need to move it in a positive direction. So, and and again, it's so many people that that's their intention. i'm gonna love myself and have more patience yeah you know because we're very impatient with ourselves i know i am like i want it now i gotta do this now i'm not in good enough shape i need to do this i should have done that i need to accomplish more here and it's like slow down you know find the balance so you're not on too far end of the either side of the spectrum um so once the intentions are set what will happen is Pepe will serve medicines. Now, sometimes we don't just serve ayahuasca. We do other plant medicine, what's referred to as dietas. Mm-hmm. So, some people work with different types of plant medicines. You can diet everything from the tobacco plant, um, chichiwasi. There's many different many tamamori. There's different types of trees and plants that they use the bark. And I mean, this is an a ancient study. I mean, I don't, there's so many different plant species in the jungle that we have no idea. I mean, that's where most of big pharma medicine comes from. They get it from the Amazon, synthesize it, patent it, make a shitload of money, and it's not as good as the real thing. So um, many different medicines that you can diet. But when we have people in the ceremony, if they're dieting another medicine, people will come up one after one and get their dieta medicine, mm-hmm. and then afterwards they'll come up for their shot of ayahuasca. Now, with our, the way that we work with ayahuasca is we don't dose people too heavy at first, especially on the first night. We let them feel it a little bit. After an hour or two into the ceremony, if they feel they want a little bit more, it's there that they can take a little bit more. So it's almost like dipping your toes in. You don't want to put people in the deep end right away. You want to let them get a feel for it. And usually do three ceremonies in a row. So you'll get a chance to go deeper as the nights continue. Um, So after the ayahuasca is served, we turn all the lights off in the maloca. Um, Pepe drinks the medicine. Kunti drinks the medicine. I don't drink the medicine. I'm usually positioned by the door, by the exit, <laughs> just just in case somebody decides to make a run for it, I'll go out with them, but it's like, I'm kind of like the psychedelic shepherd, I keep people in, this, in the circle, and if they want to go look at the stars, I'll take them outside, but then bring them back in, so that's how we keep it safe, we keep the groups very small, Um, I don't drink. I keep an eye on things. We also have a doctor and a nurse on call, which are about 10 minutes away if anything happens. We have an oxygen tank because we're here at elevation. I mean, right now I'm at 3,300 meters, which is about 11,000 feet. Mm. So, you know, we have noticed that some people have a hard time breathing, so we have oxygen. We have everything that's you know in place to keep people from having a panic attack. If they do have one, we have the tools. You know, I'm usually pretty good at con- I know panic attacks very well, so I usually know how to help people chill and sort of mellow out a little bit. Um, after the ayahuasca is drank, the lights go out. Pepe begins immediately to perform what's called an Icaros, which is a medicine song, mm. and that song that he sings. I've never seen a shaman like him because he will sing for an hour straight and he's making sounds even as he's inhaling. So there's no break in the music. It's, mm. it's like, how do you do that? I'm like, as he's breathing in, he's making it part of the song. So mm-hmm. he forms the Icarus. And like I said, what you feel is some shamans, they'll let people sit in the dark for about an hour and wait for the medicine to kick in before they start to sing. Pepe calls the medicine out of you he calls it out by using the icaros and you can literally feel the vibration of the song and the room starts to come alive and he's bringing it up so he'll sing for an hour and usually after an hour the medicine is kicking in that's when we offer people a little bit more if they would like more and if they don't want more then they can chill even some people don't drink the medicine they just sit in the circle and notice huge effects just from being in the the energy the energy yeah phases. so then After the initial first, what's called an opening Icaros is performed, Pepe goes to the foot of the bed of each guest and sings for 20 to 30 minutes their own personal Icaro, which is based on their intention.
0: That's
1: beautiful. That is so beautiful. It's amazing because Mm. the, the benefit that we have having a small group is we can take time with each person. One-on-one time with the shaman, time to you know have a, somebody sing to you for twenty or thirty minutes is very therapeutic. And I always get people if they can, if they're not you know sometimes you get very dizzy with the medicine that you can't sit up and you're feeling like very you know much affected by it. If you can, you sit up and put your face very close to Pepe and he'll sing like literally a couple feet away from you and you can feel. I've had nights that, where your that body's is still.
0: amazing. That's a beautiful touch. For the, the ceremony, oh, by the way,
1: and that's to most people, it's it's so profound because I've literally had um, like one of my experiences with Pepe is he took me back, and it, it comes back to me having the um, the reoccurring nightmare of this child in the burn unit, you know, coming back to my story. Pepe worked with me, and I told him like, you know, I you know it, going on uh, away from my own advice at uh, first was like. I told him, I don't want to have these nightmares anymore. And it's like, he's like, well, <laughs> it's like, okay, what do you, I want to have nice dreams and good sleep. <laughs> it's like, let me reframe, you know, that's showing the the enlightenment Neanderthal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, yes. Neanderthal, no more bad dreams. It's like <laughs> so, eventually I framed it in another way. And he sung to me and he took me back to the children's burnium I was a child in that burn unit and it, it was literally like I, I thought holy shit this is going to be a brutal night. Mm. But it was like I, I had to go back and see it and like you said earlier you have to face things and feel them before you can let them go. So I went back and realized in this moment like I was just a kid there was no way I could have helped that child and I had felt all this like I don't know if it was shame or guilt that I had heard all this suffering I, I felt helpless it's like You were helpless, so let it go. You were helpless. There was nothing you could do. You couldn't help the other child. You couldn't help yourself. And I I wrote about this. I actually did a few journal entries where when he sang to me, it took me to that place. I experienced the horror and the tragedy and the suffering. And then in a split second, it was almost like a, a vision of Mother Ayahuasca came to me and picked me up and carried me away And we ended up spending the whole night flying around in the stars. And and I just felt like it wasn't like I had to think about it anymore. I didn't have to focus on it. I just let it go. And I haven't had that nightmare since. So it's been over a year and a half now. I'm so happy for you. It's amazing. And it's like for me, again, I have this viewpoint that I don't like it when people say, oh, will, will ayahuasca cure this? Will it cure that? I'm like, I always tell people, no, you'll have to do it. But in sometimes it actually does heal. It helps you let go in a certain way so that you can move forward.
0: It's what you said before. What you said was it shows you a pathway. And then you have to walk the path, which is with every kind of healing, like even healing through deep meditation. You know, when people say they're a healer, they're not, they're not a healer. They're facilitators of healing. Yes.
1: I can't say, I just saw the before we started our, our conversation, I, I saw something on my feed, and it was like a, an advertisement, "How to become a healer <laughs> Space. face. Mm. You know, that's what people, It's like, I facilitate people to heal themselves. I create the same space, I'm there if they need support, but they have to do the work. And it's even something that when I see somebody struggling in an ayahuasca ceremony, it's almost like you know, your initial reaction is you want to go to them and help them. I never go to them and help them unless they ask for help. I tell them beforehand, try your best to work through this on your own. Um, but if you need help, I'm here. So there, there's that. It's not like you're alone and you're going to suffer. But at the same time, don't just reach out for help. You know, like some people are like, oh, I need a glass of water. Oh, I need you to hold my hand. Oh, I need this. I need that. I need this. And they spend the whole night telling you what they need and sometimes what they need is to help themselves like obviously i'm not going to let somebody throw up on themselves and if they need help to the bathroom but when you're in that emotional process Mm. sometimes it's better to face it alone i mean it's it's cliche and it's an analogy that's been used so many times but it's true it's like the cocoon for the butterfly you know like if you don't let it struggle and get itself out and help it's not going to be strong enough to live life Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's true with the ayahuasca like yes, I can hold your hand all night long and I can tell you it's going to be okay, or you can hold yourself and hold space for yourself and learn to work through it, that you're not always going to need somebody. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not saying that we don't need people from time to time, but I just feel some people, they underestimate their own power and they immediately reach for help when they maybe don't need it. You know what I mean? And and then they're going to always feel like they're dependent on somebody. They're not strong and independent enough. And again, I mean, some of us face tragedies that we need somebody to hold our hand. I get it. But... You know, balance. You know, you gotta work a little.
0: It's the Uh, tough love. You're showing them some tough love. Tough love, (laughs) (laughs) babe. All about the tough love. (laughs)
1: That's
0: that's true. I I agree with that. Uh, Where would you tell people to go to find out more about your retreat?
1: Um, Well, you can go to the website, which is earthmedicineexperience.com. So, earthmedicineexperience.com, and on the website, there's a direct link to my Peruvian uh, WhatsApp, so it has a direct link, so if anybody hears this and they want to know more, I love to talk to people, like, I talk to people even if I know they're not coming to see me, I love working with people, I love hearing people's stories, so, you know, I had a gentleman that he didn't want to come to our retreat, he wanted to go to the jungle, I still spent hours talking to him to help him prep, because I know how confusing it can be and how there's so little information. And the advice that I would give to people that hear this, don't refer to Dr. Google. Dr. Google will diagnose you and tell you all <laughs> the horrible things about ayahuasca, and you'll have to talk to somebody who actually... To
0: be honest, Chris, I mean, I got your contact through a good friend, Joe.
1: Shout out to Joe. Yeah, shout out to Joe. Yeah,
0: Joe. Out to Joe. And um, I looked up several retreats in peru when i was considering coming down and i kid you not i got the the weirdest sense from some of the people who i'd spoken to from other places in in peru and when we connected i knew that you were authentic and it's so important this is a really important message for everyone listening is that you've got to do your homework because this is a new experience and you need to have a safe space. You need to, to be with the right kind of people who've got your back. And, and uh,
1: like you said, that's a great point. And the, the right type of people, for some people, it may be the drum and feather crowd that wears all white. And absolutely. Yours. if That's yours. Go for it. Find, find, your
0: find your tribe.
1: tribe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you want the tough love. <laughs>
1: Chris is your man. Exactly. <laughs> and if you want just an honest, if you don't want the whole... You You're know, like, warm,
0: Chris. You're so warm and open and lovely. And I like the balance of you.
1: So, And, and, that's what, and honestly, I owe that. To so come back to the very first of the conversation, I owe that to the pain and the trauma. It cracked me open. I had so,
0: no choice. Th- but that's just it, right? Some of the best people who are doing some of the really good work needed on this planet have really suffered some deep trauma and have had to go through the process so that they know what they know what other people are going through they can empathize better it doesn't come off as fake it's more authentic because they've been there they've been in those
1: shoes so those are my best friends i mean my best friends are people that have suffered a lot because i just find that they they live life more in the moment and they embody all the things that I guess some of these groups they've read about, but they haven't actually gained the wisdom of it. You know, like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, you can read Siddhartha, but like, that's great. And you can hear about, you know, like all the suffering, but if you go through it yourself, it's going to be, you're going to understand it. You know what I mean? It's like, what's the Brene Brown that talks about, if you're not in the arena getting your ass I don't want your opinion yeah and that's just you know, it's like hey if you're not if you're not in there putting yourself out there to for the haters to judge you and for the people to slander you and, and tell you this and tell you that it's like I don't want to hear about it because we can all sit behind our keyboards and have opinions but until we're actually in the arena where people can see then you know it's like it's a very powerful statement for me it's like I my best friends are the people that have suffered and have overcome because they don't care about the minuscule bullshit that's in their lives. Like, you know, some people are so concerned if you swear or if you use this or you do that. And it's like, that's shouldn't be even on your radar about things to worry about. You should be more worried about how to help yourself and look at the issues of yourself.
0: Yeah. I love that. Yep, got to look at the issues of yourself, we're normally running, we're normally seeking escapism. How can we embody the best versions of ourselves while looking fear and trauma and pain in the face and using it as a tool to grow? Um, what are the pathways that can help us heal and be more creative so that we can actually influence the world for good? We also want to reiterate that plant medicine, psychedelics, psilocybin, all of these different avenues is not for everyone. We encourage reading more research from credible sites on psychedelics. We talked talked about maps.org. We talked about Hopkins University. There's a lot of research in that space and several of the Ivy League research centers as well. And there is a paper that was recommended by Jamie Wheel in one of his podcast interviews by Houston Smith. And he did a paper titled, Do Drugs Have Religious Import? And it was a 40-year retrospective, a really worthwhile your time if you're interested in that space. He was one of the founding research researchers Of psychedelics and consciousness. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. And big shout out to Chris for sharing his story so openly and bestowing us with all his wisdom and knowledge so that we can take it away and make educated decisions on how we choose to be more creative and how we choose to heal and really live our lives better day by day. Thank you you so much. Much love. Much love. Bye bye. Ciao, ciao. Until next time, my friends, seek your truth and then live it. It takes some courage and a whole lot of love.